Welcome back to One More Thing. We're here today on a nice Tuesday afternoon, getting a little recording in. Thank you for coming back. Welcome. Been thinking, I think the best sports month of the year has to be April. I mean, I realize you got March Madness, but March Madness doesn't end until April. The Final Four is pretty much all in April. You got the Masters, if you're a golf fan, or even if you're not a golf fan, the Masters is probably the most beautiful event televised throughout the entire year. Advertisements for the Masters are incredibly low. Uh, They pretty much are a self-funded organization. It's probably the greenest golf course you'll ever see. So even if you're not a golf fan, you can appreciate the beauty of the Masters. And if you are a golf fan, it is the mecca of golf. Everyone's dream is to play, well, at least on the West Coast, play Pebble Beach and Augusta, right? Maybe Bandon Dunes? I don't know. I don't even know how many golfers there are out there, but I'll tell you what. When I was an early teacher and definitely could not call this a career that made me enough money to only have one career, I was working at a golf course and really found that golf is a game as much as it's seen as an old man's game. It's a game that really should be played by everyone. I wish it could be played by everyone. I realize it's kind of a country club sport, and obviously it's more difficult to play golf if you're not you know, rich or have money coming out of your ears or whatever. But, you know, as a hobby, it's incredible. It's one of the best hobbies in the world. Outside for four or five hours at a time, hopefully less than four, because everyone loves to be behind that one group of people that have no idea how to golf. The irony is that, you know, without those people that don't know how to golf, at some point that game could die. I mean, look at what they're doing to save golf nowadays, make the holes bigger so that people will come, Uh, make it soccer golf so that we can sell tickets to people that would never set foot on a golf course or have never swung a club, but they still can walk outside in the beauty of nature and kick a soccer ball around into these holes. That's not golf, but I get it. At least you got people on the golf course, and at least at that point, People that are there eventually might pick up a stick and say, sure, why not? I can be the next Tiger Woods or I don't know. Who do the kids like these days? Ricky Fowler? Is it guys like Rory McIlroy or Jordan Spieth? Personally, Jordan Spieth is by far my favorite of the new young generation. I mean, he he came within a breath of coming back in the Masters this past year before losing really on his own accord when he hit the ball into the tree on the last hole on 18 and probably stopped what was one of the most magical rides we've seen in the Masters over the past few years. Then you got the basketball playoffs starting at the same time. You got baseball starting at the same time. Everyone loves baseball at the beginning of the year. Got spring training and then it leads into opening day and everyone's excited to be out in the sun again if it's sunny. It's always hilarious when you're a college baseball player and you play a lot of your early games in late January, early February. And, you know, ironically, half the country can't play baseball until late February, uh, March, even April. But games are still scheduled early because colleges end 
in June and you got to get everything done by June. So even though you're playing 50 games, only 50 games, you got to get it done from the end of January to usually by the end of, end of April, you're pretty much through your regular season in the playoffs. So you got baseball starting. You got the NFL draft coming in at the end of April every year. I remember being a college baseball player and watching the draft while I was in a hotel room waiting for our game in Cal State Monterey Bay or something like that, some random place. You got the Kentucky Derby in May. But I mean, April's got to be the month, right? Is there a better month for sports? I feel like it's every sport is represented in April. Soccer, I mean, if you're a soccer fan, you got the Champions League, which is getting close to the end, but the majority of the playoff section of the Champions League is in April. I think April's the month. I don't know. May's good too, but and once you get into the summer, it starts getting more into baseball and things kind of chill out a bit. And it's nice to go to a game because you're outside again and all that kind of stuff. But April's got to be the month for all the sports, right? I don't think there's a better one. I don't think there is. So I've been thinking, what what are some things that shaped who I became as a baseball player and finally decided that I would devote myself to baseball rather than other sports. I mean, I grew up playing everything. I remember I had a inline skating phase where I was rollerblading over and over and over again. And then someone in my street introduced me to roller hockey. And so I was out there with a hockey stick and a puck and firing pucks off of (laughs) random places in my little court that I called home. And it was really enjoyable. I don't think we broke anything. That was always something I was pretty afraid of. Hockey puck is not all that forgiving, is it? I remember out there on this small little court, the nice thing about it is it was quiet. So, you know, if anyone did turn into the court and was actually going to park their car, they did so at a pretty slow pace. So you could pretty much play any sport and just time out. All right, come on through. Time in. All right, let's start this game back up. I remember some epic wiffle ball battles back in the day. We played on such a small court, we all learned how to hit line drives up the middle or right at the pitcher. When I was in college, I remember the scariest moment I ever had as a baseball player was when I was hitting. I was locked in my sophomore year. I don't think I've ever been more locked in at the plate. And this guy threw me a fastball down the middle that I just absolutely obliterated right at him. And I swear I thought I killed him. The guy hit the deck right after I hit it. And I thought I absolutely hit this guy right in the head and he was done for. And luckily he caught it because, and I I didn't even move. I didn't even go to first base. I hit the ball and just felt my heart drop. And uh, the guy caught it. And, you know, I was happy for him. I wasn't even mad. There's, you know, as a baseball player, you have plenty of disasters where you just smoke a ball right at somebody and you just get really disappointed. This one, I was happy the guy was alive. But yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, we used to play on this little court that was really tiny and you had to hit the ball to center field. Otherwise, you pretty much would be hitting the ball off houses on either side. So 
I grew up playing baseball in the, on the street. We used to have a basketball court that we would go out there and play. And, uh, you know, we'd play. I, I remember playing over the line with myself where I'd have a little Nerf ball bat, those long, skinny tube looking bats. And then you'd have the little Nerf balls that were the size of golf balls. And you could see how, how well you could hit because they were so tiny. Um, if you could hit one of those little balls, you could hit anything. I remember playing home run derby with myself where I would have to hit the ball a certain distance. And then if I didn't hit it a certain distance, I was out because I had watched all day long. I had sat in my room in the morning on a Saturday watching those home run derbies between Willie Mays and Willie McCovey and all these great players. Mickey Mantle was on the show for a few times. It was great. You used to sit down and watch, I don't know, it was like CBS or ABC. And you'd watch these home run derbies of these legends, guys that I never, ever see play in my lifetime, but got a chance to see these run, run reruns of Home Run Derby. I was talking to someone the other day, and I think they told me those were filmed all out in Hollywood or LA, something like that. Beautiful. But I would watch those in the morning and then go out and play all day long with myself, hit, hitting a ball back and forth. And I didn't need a partner or anything like that. It was great when my dad came home, he'd come home and We'd go to Hamilton back in the day and sit there and play home run derby, but everything to the right side was an out because we didn't want to look over there. So if you hit it to the right side, that counted as an out. So it was either a home run or an out. But if it was a home run to right center field, that was an out. Too bad. Later, ironically, I found that that kind of promoted a bit of a pull, pull hitter in myself. And eventually I did have to learn how to hit the ball the other way, which luckily I had spent so much time practicing my swing. It wasn't that difficult to change. But yeah, I mean, it's funny the things that you do when you only have one or two people. And in the process of thinking back of what shaped all of that, I think there were a number of movies and I'll call them romanticized versions of sports movies, right? I mean, when I was growing up, the three movies that were on replay at my house were Chariots of Fire, I'll explain in a second, Hoosiers, and The Natural. Those movies were on replay over and over and over again. Chariots of Fire was this great movie. I think it won Best Picture in like 1980 or something like that. Someone can look it up and prove me wrong. It was like 1970 or something. I don't know. And it was a movie about runners that ran in the Olympics. And for some reason, it appealed to me. There's this romanticized version of movies that just, for those of us that are athletes, there's something within us that we just get so much out of when you see a movie that really speaks to you and, and shows you the amount of dedication and, and work it put that you have to put in in order to be good. You know, I, I never was under a grand illusion that I was going to be a great player. I always thought I had to prove myself no matter what. And I think that, honestly, that is what makes good players. Guys that think that they're going to be good generally aren't. Guys that don't think they're good and feel like they actually have to work at it generally get good more quickly. And so I would watch this movie, Chariots of Fire, and I was never a fast guy, but I remember... Uh, the guy in the movie, I think it was like Eric Little, he was this amazing runner from Scotland or something like that. And he's representing Scotland in the 
Olympics and or or the United Kingdom and the the Olympics and he had this really weird style where he'd tilt his head back and almost look like he was swallowing air while he was running a hundred meter dash. And I remember in my street, I would practice running and I would randomly just tilt my head back like I was in that movie or something like that. It's weird how we adopt these things. I mean, I must have been eight, nine, ten years old when I'm re- when I'm watching this stuff. And I was never fast. Get me, Don't get me wrong. But it inspired me that young age to work hard at my craft and Hoosiers. I mean, during basketball season, I think I watched Hoosiers every night. If we had a game, I definitely watched Hoosiers the night before. Everyone loves the underdog, right? In the movies, we all love the underdog. And that's kind of my childhood throughout the 80s and early 90s was watching these movies like Hoosiers where, you know, you get the small school, high school in the middle of Indiana, finally make the finals when you know they're a school it looked like a school of a hundred kids or something like that and they're coming up against a school of a couple of thousand in the state finals you know and jimmy chitwood or chatwood whatever his name was hits the game winner at the end the guy that they finally pulled out of the rafters and got to play because he was probably helping his family at the farm the family farm or something like that i mean all of that kind of stuff spoke to me as a kid you know the the underdog the kid that didn't really have much to say, but definitely could back up his game with a whole lot of game, right? And then the other movie that hit me hard as a kid was The Natural. I can't tell you how many times in my little court as a kid, I would hit the game-winning home run against some imaginary pitcher that I had just lobbed the ball up from. And it was Roy Hobbs rounding the bases again. who just tear- tore the cover off the ball one more time. I remember as we were, when we were kids and we were taking batting practice, if that guy did actually get the cover to kind of peel off a little bit, we thought we had kind of been Roy Hobbs for a second and actually was strong enough to rip the cover off the ball. And of course, that's a bit of a romantic story again, right? The guy that couldn't make it and then he came in because, you know, his checkered past had forced him into never really going out. Uh, and playing baseball and then all of a sudden he shows up in his you know late 30s or early 40s or something like that and they finally figure out that this guy can hit I mean he came up as a pitcher and um, all of a sudden they figure out he can hit and he's this revelation for a team that's just floundering and all that kind of stuff right it it, it's a great movie but it's one of those movies that I think it's what Robert Redford Um, one of his early movies and it's one of those that really spoke to me as a kid because it gave me this romanticized version that that you could start from nothing or you could have something totally terrible happen in your life but at the end of the day you'd be able to pick yourself up and win right and then you know you get other romantic sports movies like Friday Night Lights right there's probably the only good football movie I can think of I, I can't think of any other football movie that isn't, you know, a comedy or just bad. And Friday Night Lights was decent, but they don't win. So at the end of the day, you, you like the movie and there's there's a message involved with it, of course, but they don't win. In Hoosiers, they win. Chariots of Fire, they win. The Natural, Roy Hobbs finally turns it around and he wins. And then you got Friday Night Lights, where the guys stopped at the goal line, and they lose. 
It's like the first time I'd ever seen a sports movie and they didn't win. Crushed me. I didn't know what to think. What, what do you do when you don't win? And I think that that was something we all learn, right? Some of us learn it earlier and later, and some of us actually figure out that what makes us good at sports is really our ability to not ever give in or think that we can win. That's one thing that I didn't really understand when I was coaching. I, I, when I was coaching, it was the first time in my life that I ever had someone on a team that I was a part of actually consider the idea that you could lose. And I never felt that way, ever, as an athlete. I never once considered the option of loss. Now, I lost, clearly, but I always thought there would be a second time or a second ability to prove myself that I could win. I think that the best athletes always have the concepts that they are the best at their sport, or at the very least that they are competitive enough to win any game they play, no matter who the opponent is. At, at what time in history have we decided that it's okay to believe that we're losers? I don't think that that's a good thing at all. Shouldn't we be more under the attitude that winning is absolutely not just possible, but that's what we should be striving for and that losing's not okay? I don't know. And it's not that I thought every kid that I coached thought that. I definitely didn't think that at all. I actually was just sad for the kids that put in all of the work that there were people that thought that way. And I'm sure that when I was a kid, there were plenty of people that thought, oh, we're playing so-and-so today. We definitely can't win. I just never understood it. It wasn't part of my psyche. I think I understand it more now, but when you're a college athlete or if you're a real athlete, you rarely ever put yourself in a position where you have that thought creep in. And I think it has a little bit to do with what I talked about a little bit, I think, on the last episode. You know, at some point in your life, you realize that, you know what, I don't have it anymore. But that shouldn't happen until you're much older. You know, you shouldn't feel like you're not capable of winning. That got really sad real quick. All right, we're going to go back to something I was thinking about earlier as well. And that's baseball movies. I mean, the, the great thing about baseball movies is that there's basically three types. And hilariously, the person that is in all three of these movies is Kevin Costner. I mean... I'm not a huge Kevin Costner fan. I feel like some of his movies are just way too long. I don't think I've seen every single Kevin Costner movie there ever is to see, but I do remember that all I remember about Kevin Costner movies is that it's they're generally too long. But these three are pretty good. And hilariously, they're good for different reasons. So the three baseball movies, other than The Natural that I think are probably the greatest baseball movies other than The Natural are Field of Dreams, For the Love of the Game, and Bull Durham. Now, of all of those, I think Field of Dreams is probably the one everyone knows, right? I mean, I'm assuming. Again, I kind of grew up in a sports family, and so for me, when people say, I've never seen The Field of Dreams, I'm like, 
what rock have you lived under? But I get it, if you haven't seen it. Some guy out in the middle of, what, Iowa, Ohio, something like that, middle America, starts having visions of people or starts hearing voices that he needs to build it and they will come. And then he finally decides to turn his cornfield into a baseball field. And then all of a sudden, these incredible players from back in the day, Shoeless Joe Jackson shows up on his lawn playing baseball as a ghost. Great movie. James Earl Jones, also known as Darth Vader, shows up and he's going to announce. It's awesome. I mean, Field of Dreams is another version of that romanticized baseball movie. Kevin Costner's good. And then they finally decide, because the family farm isn't doing too well, that they're going to start selling tickets to this imaginary game that people are going to somehow see because the magic of the the field is, is somehow come alive. I mean, it was cute. That Thinking back at it now, it's actually kind of sad. Well, I don't know if it's sad or just weird. Something like that. For the love of the game, I, I'd be surprised if you've seen it because you kind of have to either be a baseball fan or like romantic comedies, which I realize some people are not a fan of the rom-com section of the movie department and some people don't like sports movies. So to combine the both of them, uh, you know, you probably alienate what 75% of people watching movies. But the love of, for the love of the game spoke to me the most, I think, of these three movies because when you're someone who finally gets injured as an athlete, you realize that there's going to be times where you do not feel like you have your ability anymore. And a movie like For the Love of the Game is a perfect example of that. You know, you got this 40-year-old pitcher who's been around the block a few times and has a significant injury that drastically affects his career. And he comes to the end of his career. And it's this whole drawn out movie where they, they take one baseball game and it's nine innings and he, he finally throws a perfect game. You know, the first perfect game he's ever thrown, probably the first no hitter he's ever thrown. And he does it at the very end of his career while he's remembering this love affair he had with his probably only significant girlfriend uh, over the past, whatever, 20 years. And it's interesting. It's cute. It's well-written. But honestly, the best part of the movie is the end, of course, when uh, he realizes that the game itself is going to go away and that something outside of the game is more important. And that's what we all figure out at some point. Some of us figure it out earlier than others. But at some point, we finally realize that something outside of these games that we play is more important. And then Bull Durham. I mean, if you're a baseball player, if you've played minor league baseball or if you've played big league baseball or if you've played college baseball, I'd be real surprised to see if you haven't seen Bull Durham. The best part of that movie is probably the part that's been shared on Facebook and YouTube over and over and over again, where you got the mound visit and Kevin Costner's the catcher. He comes out and he's talking to the pitcher about what he needs to do differently. And then the first baseman shows up and he, you know, tells everybody that he needs to get a chicken to sacrifice for some reason. And then, uh, you know, they basically they get this full laundry list of all the different weird, quirky things that baseball players think that they need in order to be good. And uh, they finally decide that they're done talking about it and they're going to continue on with the game. But every baseball player that's ever played the game at a high level knows that you have these really weird quirks. 
you at some point decide that, you know, for some reason you got to wear the same socks over and over again. I think I wore the same pair of socks every single game in high school. I don't think I changed my socks. I think that there was actually a problem at some point when our coach decided he was going to change our socks. I think we revolted. I think all of us revolted. I remember I wore the same number every single game in high school except one, and our coach forced us to switch numbers. And I'm sitting there going, why would he mess with us like that? We ended up winning the game because we started thinking about something other than how terrible we had been playing. I I think throughout high school, I, I wore 24 every single game except one. And the one number I wore other than 24 was 14. And the only reason I wore 14 is because the other guy on the team named Jason was wearing 14. And I said, I will trade with you. And that's it. And so I wore 14 for one game. And then I went back to 24. And I don't think I ever wore another number until I got to college. I had this weird thing where I thought at some point I would wear every version of four. So I thought, okay, high school, I'll wear 24. College, I ended up playing with 14, ironically, because that had been the only other number I had worn over the past four years and said, okay, fine. Some senior had 24 and there was no way I was going to take the senior's number as a freshman in college. That just doesn't happen. So... I decided to go with 14, and my goal when I took 14, I said, okay, I'll take 14, but by the time I get to the pros, I'm wearing four. So my goal was to make my way down the line. Of course, if I had been drafted by the Yankees, I would not have been able to wear four because all the single digits are gone, right? But that was the goal. Anyway, I know this is such a sports episode, but and it's, it's random because it's like sports movies, but uh, I think that's it. And I enjoyed kind of reminiscing about some of these old topics and old baseball movies and romantic movies. And I I think what I find when I look back at this stuff is it shaped a lot of how I actually played a lot of these games. You know, when I was a kid, I think one of the reasons why I was a successful baseball player and a successful athlete is because I respected the games that I was playing because I had so much respect for the amount of work and effort and time that I was putting into them. And so when I got to a game, I always made sure that I was trying my best to put on a show. You know, I remember I I lived in a relatively poor household when I was a kid. You know, I, I definitely had family outside that had a little bit of money, but I our house didn't have a lot of money. And my dad told me when I was a kid, if you want to go to college, you better get a scholarship because I can't pay for it. And so for me, I always felt like I was trying to prove something every time I was on the field. And I think a lot of the movies that I was watching as a kid promoted this kind of idea that, you know, winning was necessary. And there was a certain attitude that I think I just adopted that I had to be good. And I hope that some of that has translated into my work life where, you know, I, as a teacher, try to give the best version of AP European history that I can give every year. And I know that you're never going to be perfect, but that's why I guess when I first started teaching my World War II slides, I think I had something like, I don't know, 50 slides or something like that. And now it's somehow almost 200 slides. It's like, there's no way I'm getting through all of this stuff. I have to cut out half the stuff that I want to do because you know, you keep trying to get better and better. And really what you're doing is adding stuff and not necessarily getting better. You're just getting more. And that is what it is. But 
it's probably a topic for a different day. And I'm sure at some point we'll talk a little bit about education. Um, but I'll leave you at that. That was one more thing. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in episode four. Thank <laughs> you.